flair over the infield because nobody gives up more crap hits than Ryan Borowski. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. So, you know, if, we, if we're having pizza at a new place, I have to ask her, like, what do you got? Is this a 50 or maybe a 55? <laughs> so. And remember, the Jays lineup is already dynamite. It'd be dynamite! <laughs> I should not have left you that open. <laughs> And welcome to episode number 213 of Artificial Turf Wars. We're just over here wondering if the Texas Rangers can stay for the rest of the season. I'm your host, Greg Wisniewski, and I am joined by the terrific Joshua Housem. Josh, how are you doing tonight? Feeling terrific. <laughs> uh, we, took a, we took a break. Like the All-Stars, we took a break. A little extra time between podcasts, but that's good. Uh, I'm feeling refreshed. Uh, the Blue Jays are going to feel refreshed because they're coming home, baby. Back to the dome. No more minor league ballpark for home games. Uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the all-star performances uh, in and around the all-star game. And then uh, the all-star offense coming back and just pounding the living crap out of Texas for three games. Uh, with the assistance of Robbie Ray, whom I have put two exclamation points after in my notes. Uh, as well as Hyunjin Ryu, the return of Ryan Barucki. Uh, an update on Danny Jensen and whether he is or is not an automatic out. And, I mean, he's got a fairly narrow window to hit again, Josh, because we don't have a lot of games. Um, then we have an interview because there was a major league draft uh, during our our break. Uh, we're going to get Keenan Lamb of Baseball Prospectus to fill us in on how the Jays did. We have your questions. And then a gold star in an um, unfortunate situation. We're going to find the bright spot. Uh, we're going to go on to, to several players from the San Diego Padres. I would uh, begin here with the fact that the Blue Jays, against all odds, uh, are for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic coming home to play in front of fans in the great city of Toronto. How are you feeling, Mr. I remember you had season tickets not too long ago. <laughs> I still do. Um, yeah, I'm really happy about it, obviously, because we do this thing, so we kind of might be Blue Jays fans. Um yeah, I, I'm really excited to go. And, you know, it's before we get into like them coming back the week prior. <laughs> I, my God, the misinformation that was coming out. And like I like I do over to me. Right. I completely fell for it. I was getting all angry at like this. Like, this they're not going to hear by their deadline. Like, how can they not say yes or no? Well, they said yes. <laughs> and we should have just ignored all the noise and waited for the freaking answer. <laughs> But it came and it was uh, it was great news. They're going to they, you know, they're allowed to come back. There's modified quarantines for people who are unvaccinated. <coughs> Red Sox and Yankees. Um, and people will get to go watch them, which they'll get to get actual only Blue Jays fans in their games. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the I think the more difficult thing was was sorting out those other teams that might have to come in, but leveraging the resources at their disposal and limiting, you know, their their travel when they are in Canada and everything else. I think that's um, give, given that the vaccines are out there and we're not where we were last year at this time. I think that's a reasonable way to approach things, and it, it certainly gives a big boost to the uh, the people in Toronto who might be fans of this team who who really want to support this team in person. Yeah. And they announced that they're going to give, I think it was 750 tickets to frontline workers, which is not just healthcare people like some other people are doing. It includes 
grocery store employees, restaurant workers, people that have had to carry the load for the rest of us throughout this whole thing. And I think that's really nice that they're they're rewarding people who have been sort of hidden from the public view because you get all the banging of trash or of pots for nurses and stuff. But some of these other people were just as important. So I, I'm really happy that they did this. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, you are going to see a bunch of all stars when uh, when they come back on the 30th. Chief among them, I guess, is All-Star Game MVP Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, wow. That was something, man. Like, he, he did all of the things that he did in the regular season, like, compressed into one game just to remind everyone of how awesome a year he's having. You know, we, we talked about the concept of this through the nature of the horrible jerseys in the last episode of this show. <laughs> This idea that you want your players to shine when the world is watching. And, I mean, he could not have shone any brighter. His first at bat, he hits a bullet that almost decapitates Max Scherzer. And then, as he's, you know, grounds out because of the shift. Who plays the shift in the All-Star game? But <laughs> I digress. Um, There's a story about that, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so he he comes back and he just hugs Max Scherzer and it just it shows his warmth and how liked he is around the game. But the typically stoic Max Scherzer embraced it and let it happen. <laughs> and then, of course, he hit the bomb, the gigantic bomb, while they were interviewing Tatis, who just put his hands on his head. <laughs> She's like, oh, my goodness. So, yeah, it, it was perfect. That was um... – yeah, that when a opposing player, you know, obviously in the All-Star game, it's going to happen more often than otherwise on the infield turns around to admire your moonshot uh, with his hand on his head. That was amazing. And then they're like, say something to him. <laughs> Apparently, the Spanish, what translated from what Tatis said in Spanish, I've, I've read a couple different ones, but was generally, why don't you stand there and look at it a little longer? <laughs> Well, and, and also Vlad had ribbed Tatis earlier in the game because Tatis flew out deep and he like flexed at him like you get like hit the weight room, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, that's exactly fun. what the All-Star game should be. A lot of fun for everybody involved. Well, you, you know, obviously, especially now since winning and losing doesn't matter, uh, even though American League's won eight straight. Uh, but that's not the only great. I mean, that's that's Vlad being on 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 you know a pedestal and kind of where we we thought he might hit the league two years ago. He's there. But also, Marcus Semyon, Teoscar Hernandez, uh, both of them getting on base, scoring runs, uh, uh, Teoscar hitting a double. It's like, hey, these guys can hit the best pitchers in the league. Pretty cool as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, the only thing I was a little disappointed about is they didn't let Bo Bichette come in to play before taking Semyon and, and Vlad out. Because it would be nice to have the three members of the Jays infield that were there all in the field at once. Yeah, not that you could see that by the uniforms, but I. But yeah, they yeah they, I mean, Simeon, it was a you know, it was a squiver base hit, but it drove in a run. And, and Teoscar hit a rocket double off the fence. So those two guys did well. And Bo made a nice play in the field. So they all did well. So the Blue Jays come out of the All-Star game uh, thinking that they can destroy the world. And uh, Texas Rangers happen to show up uh, to be victimized by this this effect. Yeah, and, and it was really, I mean, we'll get to the pitchers in a second, because obviously they gave up two runs in the series, but they scored 25. So we're starting with the bats. Uh, Vlad, specifically, 
you know, he'd still been hitting fine, but he'd had a couple rough games going into the all-star break. He had two home runs in July coming in two home runs in the first game of the series. He had a third one in the third game of the series and Semyon hit a home run in the first game of the series that, you know, really cemented the, the, the win for the Jays and, Teoscar hit a bomb who had not hit, had been hitting for power at all. And it's like, these guys came out of this all-star game where they performed and they buried Texas by just showing up and doing exactly what they're supposed to do. Uh, fun, weird. One of those like stats that's never going to come up again, but the fact that Semyon, uh, Guerrero and, and Hernandez all homered in the first game back from an all-star game that they had all gone to had never happened between three teammates in history before in the first game back. Well, there you go. <laughs> and then so, Gritchick decided to just like get his name in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, every time Gritchick wants to get his name in there by hitting a home run, I support that. <laughs> and he's done it twice in this, since they came back. Yeah, it, it again, it is not a uh, total barometer of the league, but they certainly did not limp into the second half, which is one of the things that I think you get you get afraid of if the team is is uh, going to lose its focus. Uh, no, they are focused on just being a wrecking crew. Uh, we probably should go to the pitching, as you as you alluded to. Robbie Ray yeah. did one of those stats just, you'll never hear again. Oh, sorry, you're, yeah. you're still on the offense. Yeah, but just quickly before we do that. I just want to say, like, so we saw in this last game, Lourdes Gurriel hit the Grand Slam. He had a couple RBIs, I think, in the previous one, too. And Gritchick hitting two home runs in the series. And it's like, you sort of look at this and you're like, Springer went deep, back to back with Vlad. It's like, okay, like, where's the out in this lineup? (laughs) You know, especially like once Alejandro Kirk comes back, where is the easy out? And I, I, I guess just a nightmare for pitchers when these guys are going. Yeah, and they have been going more often than not this season. We, we, when we moan here on this podcast, we do not moan about the offense very often. No, we moan about the bullpen, which we'll get to in a bit. But Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, let us speak of, of Robbie Ray. Okay, here's your statistic you'll never hear about anyone before. Robbie Ray is the first, first pitcher in Blue Jays history to start and win consecutive games. That's actually kind of crazy. I'm surprised that no one has done that before with the all-star break being the way it is. Yeah. I mean, it it could have, I I think the trick is to win them both and last five innings in both. That's possibly the trick. If someone were trying to set you up for that. Fair point. I mean, Robbie Ray has just been, he's been, I mean, he should have been an all-star and, like, you look at what he's done since the beginning of June. I mean, you, you could go back further than that, but <clears throat> 55 and a third innings in nine starts, 13 earned runs, 78 strikeouts to 14 walks. And that's a 2.11 ERA for those who, like, 99.9% of the population could not do that math in their head while I was saying the numbers. I hope not. Yeah. And, you know, like, he's just, you watch him, and it, there's no signs of, fluke to it i mean he's throwing as hard as he ever has and he's just throwing more strikes and look i don't i hate to just be the guy who's like oh oh, pete walker pete walker but we'll get to it with the next guy too he might just be a really good pitching coach that just helps make these little tweaks to help guys make it 
Yeah, I mean, he's not going to turn someone who throws, uh, you know, 93 into a 98-mile-an-hour fireballer. He's not going to turn someone, I mean, as evidenced by the bullpen, he's not going to turn Tyler Chatwood permanently into um, Mariano Rivera, right? He, he can't work miracles. But if you're looking at a guy who has the talent that everyone agreed that Robbie Ray has always had and just needs a way to harness that talent, I think Pete Walker's your guy every single time. I mean, he's certainly making a good case for it. Uh, I would be. And, paying, I mean, Rugby is obviously his, like his submission to the to the Nobel <laughs> Society, right? You know, he's going to send the, his work with Rugby to Stockholm if there were such a thing for pitching coaches. But I mean, we can see it with Ross Stripling. We can see it with with the various relievers that have just come that have that they pulled off the scrap heap that have really found themselves in Toronto and. I, I, this isn't to take anything away from Robbie Ray, who's obviously doing the work and he's making the most of it, and he's just been absolutely dominant. Um, but it's nice having that backup for like if he likes if he starts to lose something again, it's like well he's got someone who can maybe help him find it. But again, back to Robbie Ray, he he's earning a huge payday, and I hope the Jays keep him. Yeah, me too. Uh, the other guy you were going to talk about was Hyunjin Ryu, who had been now. I would like to. Uh, I don't want to say take credit, but I would like to say I, I asked hypothetically if the layoff from the All-Star break might help Hyunjin Ryu with his velocity. <laughs> and he came back like four miles an hour faster, topping out at 93 after the, the nine or ten days that he had off. Just saying. Uh, but, that's <laughs> not, but that's not the adjustment I think that Hyunjin Ryu uh, made with Pete Walker that made the bigger difference in terms of delivery because his control today in his seven inning shutout, quote unquote, uh, was much, much better than um, than it had been the last couple of times. Yeah, the first shutout in quite a long time, since 2015, I think. Um, yes, they, I mean, I, I don't want to diminish what you said about the velocity because Ryu, when he's throwing harder, is just untouchable with his pitch mix. But the, yeah, Pete Walker noticed that uh, Ryu's release point was getting too low. His arm slot was low and his release point was low, which was causing particular problems with his cutter and his changeup. They weren't moving in the in the same angles that the, he, he was used to having them move, and that's why he was having so much trouble with those two pitches. And they made the adjustment, and he was <clears throat> he was Hyunjin Ryu in this game. You know, he had more swings and misses in this game than he'd had in uh, in uh, weeks, I think, and with nine. And you know, he was throwing strikes. Uh, the strikeouts weren't completely there you know, like, like they were early in the season where he was striking out almost a batter per inning but you know and it's, it was obviously still better yeah i mean the a tangible um change in in you know behavior and result <clears throat> so I've, i'm sure there's room to continue tweaking that but obviously you're you, you're heading in the right direction yeah and, and you know i want to address the velocity thing too um the, yeah he had 11 days off between outings or 11 days so 10 days off Obviously, that's going to help anybody feel rested. <laughs> but 10 days is also an IL stint. And I'm not saying he needed one, but it might just be the exact kind of refresher that he needed to maintain some of these gains through the next month, two months of the season. Because 
you know, he, he, he threw harder. He threw more pitches, 93 miles an hour today than he'd thrown all season combined. So I don't know if I expect that necessarily, but he doesn't need to be at 93. If he can be at 90, 91, 92 and maintain that as he did through the two month stretch of last season, that's going to be just massive for this team. Having Ray Ryu, they can match up with anybody at the top of a rotation right now. Absolutely. And which moves us back to the back end of the bullpen, the other spot that the Blue Jays desperately need an injection of something. And you uh, alluded to the injured list. We've, we've talked a few, about a few people uh, coming back. Dolis already came back and has been, uh, I guess, middling. Um, however, Ryan Barucki returned, the uh, lefty extraordinaire. And in his first appearance in basically garbage time, uh, it did very much look like Ryan Barucki is back exactly the way you need him to be back. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I felt bad for him. He comes up, comes out in the middle of a rain shower. It's, a, it's like a great, this is exactly what you want your injured pitcher to do, <laughs> but they need to get him work. So I, I get it. Like I'm not blaming Montoya or anything for this. Like he needed to pitch and what better time than when you're up 10 to nothing. And yeah, he looked good. He gave up a hit to the first batter, just a little soft flare over the infield because nobody gives up more crap hits than Ryan Barucki. <laughs> I, I don't get it. He's so unlucky with his batted balls. But, you know, and they got the two strikeouts of the left-handed batters with that slider that that he found last year that's turned him into the weapon that made people compare him to Andrew Miller. And, you know, like, when you combine him with Simber, and Richards, who struck out four rays in the last game before we recorded. And, you know, you have Romano at the back. That's four guys, even without Dolis, that you can count on at the end of games. And, and you know, we, we've alluded to this a couple of times, but it's getting there. Even Taylor Sacedo looks pretty good. Indeed. Uh, yeah, so there, there is a bullpen now. Uh, is it a bullpen you could use all four games of a series? Probably not. You're probably going to run into the thin part already. So I, I think, like you said, it's coming, but there's there's a ways to go yet. But we also have uh, the... Go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, we also have Julian Merriweather somewhere out there. Well, um, he's had a reoccurrence oh, yeah. of his he injury. And... Yeah, okay, never mind. Um, yeah, but Mesa has looked really good lately. And Dulce actually hasn't given up a run since coming back in three innings with five strikeouts, two walks, and no hits. But in a four-game series, the reason that this has to follow the what we just mentioned about the rotation, they're getting good work out of Stripling and Manoa most of the time. And Mass looked very good today. He's still building his innings back up after his COVID bout. But if the starters keep going deep, it will mitigate some of the need for more back-end quality pitchers. Absolutely. Uh, okay, I'm going to migrate to my favorite part of the uh, the first uh, segment of our show. Uh, Danny Jansen, is he an automatic out, Josh? Would we would we besmirch his name by calling him such a thing? Well, we absolutely would. But we can't. do. You have <laughs> sorry. What? We can't. We can't call him an automatic out, can we? We cannot. We, we uh... well, we can, but we'd be liars. <laughs> And we are an honest pair of podcasters. Well, that's hard to say. <laughs> Three times fast. Yeah, no, he uh, he actually got two home runs since we last recorded because he homered in the last game of the race series and he homered in the last game or the, well, it's technically the second game of the Texas series. So when you were asking that, you know, you don't even have to necessarily say 
uh, that when Alejandro Kirk is back, where's the out? Yes, Danny Jensen is an easy out, but when he's not an easy out, he can burn you really hard. Yeah, and look, I, I said it before, and I'll say it again, and Nick will say it a thousand times again. This is a guy who hit a ton in the minors, right? Like, this is not... There is reason to believe that Jansen could still be a decent hitter in the major leagues. It's hard. It's getting harder with the, you know, as the sample size gets bigger, but catcher's offense develops late and you see signs of it. Like the two home runs, one against Tampa in a three to one game, mind you. And especially if they get Kirk back and you can deploy them a little more strategically, like Ryu and Jansen seem to work great together. I think that it could be really nice. And McGuire is, like on ice cold. So don't, I don't think there's any risk there. Exactly. All right. Uh, so we've, we've brought you all up to speed. I'll start post all-star break review. And we're going to go to talk to Keenan Lamb, the senior uh, draft writer at um, Baseball Prospectus, about the Blue Jays' uh, haul in the most recent amateur draft. We'll be right back after this. We are happy now to be joined by Keenan Lamb, the senior MLB draft writer at Baseball Prospectus. Welcome to Artificial Turf Wars, Keenan. Josh, Greg, so great to be here. Uh, I definitely am a big fan of the Blue Jays. I don't know if you guys know this, but I actually worked. I got my start in uh, pro baseball working for the Blue Jays uh, down in their Dunedin complex. So it's glad to kind of circle back and get back into my roots a little bit here. For a second, oh, really I, cool. th- I thought you were going to be a fan of Artificial Turf Wars, and I was going to be absolutely floored, but that <laughs> makes way more sense. <laughs> well, you got to start somewhere here. I mean, now, now, now we are. You know, now we're now yeah. we're all in. We're all we're all friends now. Um, really? So, so I'll I'll get right into it. We're, we're here to ask you draft questions. How deep was this draft? Taking into account the fact that the Jays signed George Springer and lost a second rounder, uh, how deep was this draft in general? For the Blue Jays. Um, how how deep it was for the Blue Jays or just in general? In general. In general. Sorry. So in general. Like... How, how deep was this draft? Sorry. Yeah. So so it's kind of a you have to split it into two different groups, really. Um, I think the high school class was very deep, um, very talented, especially at the top. Um, I would say above average compared to like other years. Whereas I think the college class, especially at the top, was less deep than normal. And so really what you ended up seeing, even though there was far more college players and high school players taken, it was because of kind of that cascading effect that happened at the top. You just had so many good high school players with commanding bonus slot demands uh, north of three or four or five million dollars that teams were scrambling to to make sure that they had enough money to sign those guys. And it was kind of an arms race. And so you had to see a lot of underslot deals, especially in those first 10 rounds, just trying to be able to afford guys. Yeah. So I, I guess what, more with the, the context of the blue Jays there, given the nature of this heavy cachet of over slot guys, was it a tougher year not to have a second round pick to get that extra bonus pool? 
Yeah, you can't really pull off what, say, like maybe the Pirates or the Royals ended up doing or what the Orioles probably attempted to try and do where you could uh, you know, save a little bit of money with like what the Blue Jays did with Gunnar Hoglund. You know, he's just going a little bit under uh, what the pick value was, I think, three point two five million to the three point three six uh, value there. But you can't like go take a guy like a million dollars underneath that and then try and do something in the third round, right? That's what that second round pick would have afforded you the ability to do to kind of like mess with some uh, accounting. But given those circumstances that they didn't have that second round pick, they took the best guy at the board. They took another couple of really good pitchers after that in the third and fourth rounds. I think they did an excellent job given their position. So in terms of, of Gunnar Hogland, what was the, the risk reward proposition at taking him at that point? What, what did the Blue Jays uh, taking a chance on and, and what, uh, what might they come up with? You know, Tommy John surgery is fairly prevalent nowadays and, you know, modern medicine and technology is a good thing. And I think even though it's not a sure bet that guys will bounce back and be as strong, if not stronger than before, it's not as much of a concern, at least in my purview and in a lot of other people's uh, ideas nowadays. And I still think Gunnar Hoglund was a top 10 pick at least talent wise in this year's draft, regardless of him having surgery this year or not and him having to, you know, sit out until this time next year before he's competing, you know, uh, in meaningful games in the minors doesn't affect his overall traje- trajectory or his timetable to potentially, you know, be up in the majors for the Blue Jays. So th- to me, it was a slam dunk pick. And I, I don't say this out of like hyper uh, hyperbole or trying to placate to you guys or your, your fans, but I think it was the best pick in the first round of all the picks in the first round. Marcelo Mayer was an easy choice at number four. I think Henry Davis was a fine choice at number one. Khalil Watson sliding down to the Marlins at 16 was surprising. But I think the best pick for the organization of all the picks in the first round, all 29, was Gunnar Hogland to the Blue Jays. Well, that's certainly something that our our listeners will like to hear. Give it, I mean, given that, were you surprised that he fell to 19? Obviously, the surgery risk had a lot of people expecting him to go down the board, but did you think he would go sooner? I kind of thought he did because there were some whispers that he could go in the early teens still, taking that like injury penalty out of it. And there's also like the other thing that you're having to do in the draft when you're is picking in the first round, or actually I should just say you're picking anywhere is that you're not only trying to pick a guy who fits into like the certain flow of the draft, like talent wise, you're really picking against where they think they should get paid. So it's not just a question of talent. It's a question of how much are you willing to pay a certain guy? So if Gunnar Hoglund was still to be on the board at pick number 19 and he wanted $5 million, maybe the Blue Jays pass on them. They can't blow up the rest of their bonus pool considering they don't have a second round pick, you know? Th- so that's why you saw other teams pass on guys like Brady house or, or Kumar rocker or, or guys like that, because they had set plans with the guys that they thought were going to be there for set values. So I think that's really what ended up happening there. And w- with Hogland, and the necessity for pitching, especially being needed for Toronto um, moving forward here in the next couple of years with so many position players cemented in that lineup. I think it was definitely a steal for them. Well, well we're certainly happy they worked out that way. And then you alluded a few minutes ago to some of the other arms that they took. Um, you know, they, in the third, the third through fifth round, they watched well, almost the entire draft. They took arms, but Ricky Tideman, Chad Dallas and Irv Carter are the guys getting the most mention here. Are those the three we should be talking about? 
Yes. Um, I think some of the other ones uh, could end up being more like cost savers because they're, they're trying to get as much as they can and as much bang for their buck as they can. I think Ricky Tideman was a, a really good pick in the third round, good value as being the best Juco player uh, in this year's draft. Um, he actually was eligible last year. That's the whole reason why he went to junior college this year as a, as a high schooler. So he's only 19. I think he might've just turned 20, but he's still young, six foot four projectable with a four pitch mix and can run it up to like 93, 94 with a really good changeup. So he's got some uh, some talent still left to be tapped into. And uh, he's by far, by far, like not a developed prospect as of yet. But give him some time and he could be like a mid-rotation type of lefty. I really like him. Chad Dallas was a very good righty in pretty much carried that rotation for Tennessee. They were one of the better teams in college baseball this year. And he's kind of a late bloomer where he had kind of bounced around a little bit in his college career. He has a pretty good fastball. He can get up in the uh, mid nineties, but he doesn't throw it that much, which is kind of weird. His two pitches that he would lean on a lot more are a cutter and a curveball, which are both like, I would say probably above average pitches. Maybe the curveball could be flashing plus a couple times. So I'd like to see him use his four seam a little bit in, in tandem with those other pitches. And he's also a little undersized. So you're probably not going to see a whole lot of physical development out of him. I think what you see is mostly what you get. I think he can still work on his control and his pitch a selection a little bit more. And then lastly, uh, Irv Carter, he's a kind of the wild card in this, in this entire bunch. I think Hogland has a good bet to be, you know, a number two starter in this league once he's healthy. I think Tideman and, and Dallas have decent like mid to back of the rotation potential. Irv Carter could be a whole lot of different things. So he was on a, a team, a high school team here in Florida where he was the number two starter because the number one starter was Andrew Painter, a top 15 pick. He went to the Phillies. So having both those guys on one high school team seems kind of unfair, but he's a big, like six foot three, six foot four, really physically built, uh, pretty athletic delivery. Um, there's a lot of moving parts to it, but he still gets a lot out of his arm, can get it up to 94, 95 miles an hour. Pretty good baking, uh, breaking ball that he can spin pretty well, feel for a changeup. And he's a, just a dude that people will like, gravitate towards. Like his teammates love him. He was like kind of like the – uh, the fan favorite at the perfect game, all American uh, classic last year in Oklahoma city last summer, uh, just teammates gravitate towards them. They want to be friends with them. He's just a, a fun guy to be around. So he could either be like a late innings guy. If the command never really comes around, maybe like an eighth or ninth inning guy, or he could be you know, a mid rotation starter as well. He's got plenty of good stuff, plenty of good athleticism. He he's the one where it could go a whole list of different ways. And he did say he's signing, which is always never, you know, never a guarantee with a high school guy in the fifth round. So it's it's nice for the for the Blue Jays. Mm -hmm. um, so would you say then generally that they did like they got good value with those picks? Oh, absolutely. Um, so with the draft in baseball, unlike NFL or NBA, where those teams are largely picking for need, you're usually picking best player available in baseball. And that's a real easy thing to just lean back on from a strategy standpoint. But there comes a certain point where you look at your current roster and only a couple teams can really do this, where you see the youth of your position player core with uh, Vladdy and Biggio and Teoscar. And it's just, there's young player at bow, of course, young player after young player after young player. And those guys, you want to be, there for many, many years. And really the, the question is, well, what's going to happen in pitching? There isn't the pitching behind them that 
that needs to be developed and in a relatively quick sort of pattern to catch up to these guys that are hopefully going to be offensive monsters for the next, you know, five, six, eight, ten years. So with that being said, you look at your organization and say, well, we need to go get some pitchers. Let's go get the best one of the best SEC performers there were this year, who's a top ten talent. That's a heck of a value at pick 19. I think Chad Dallas is, also has a very good chance to start, was very good in the SEC. Tideman is, is, if he finds his command, he's going to be a pretty decent starter. They did and and acknowledged what they needed, and they knew they had to make a move in this department, and they went and got the best player available within the confines of what they needed. So not only did they find best player available, they addressed what they needed moving forward. And I think that's probably something you're going to see next year as well, them addressing the need for pitching. So, okay. yeah. So looking at, you know, pitching, a, a lot of teams went pitching heavy. And and you mm-hmm. highlighted that the Blue Jays reason is for, you know, an actual organizational need type reason. But why why did we see so many arms selected in this draft overall, do you think? That's a really good question. And I've tried to suss this out with some different theories, and I've asked some scouts about this too. And it seems to me that we're kind of playing off of like two different things happening. One is the changes of the draft that happened last year and this year, neither of which are normal drafts. Last year with the five rounds, this year with the draft pushed back further, 20 rounds, still not the 40 rounds. But then we have the lessening of the minor league rosters that happen across baseball. So we're still trying to figure out roster wise and in roster construction wise like who we want to release versus these 20 new players that we're about to sign so it's still such this fluid situation that you can never really have too many arms is what it really comes down to that and the high school class as i mentioned at the top of the show here was very unusually deep and talented at the top we ended up seeing a lot of those guys actually go to school like they either took their names out of the draft or they just simply didn't have their name called because they weren't going to get a two or three million dollar offer so they're headed off to campus and what you had left were just a plethora of pitching you know especially on the college side because last year's draft was so short so many guys just went back to school even though they had one or two years left of eligibility left and you just remained with a lot of pitchers and so that's just really what was available this year and i get i guess that sort of makes sense with what we were just talking about with tideman with the short draft last year and then going to juco so he could come back in this year mm-hmm. yeah tideman he i was at least looking up a little bit what he his profile was as a high schooler, he was a fringe, maybe top five round guy last year. He, there were just so many players just condensed trying to, in, to get into a, a five round draft and doing still some of the same sorts of things where you're trying to underslot versus afford certain guys. And there were some things with some owners doing some, you know, manipulation of draft pools because they didn't want to pay out, you know, full draft bonuses. So they were paying out like one hundred thousand dollar like uh, upfront, and then this year they'd get another hundred thousand dollars, and then the rest of their bonus would be uh, in the next coming years. So they're they're still figuring out kind of the financials of last year's draft, and because it was such a just a kerfuffle, a guy like Tideman, who in a normal draft would have been picked in a normal t- twenty or forty round draft last year, he decides, well, I don't want to really go to four year school where I'm not eligible for another couple of years. I'll go to JUCO. And then here he is in the third round, slot value six hundred and fifty thousand ish, and I think he's probably gonna get pretty close to that, if not maybe a little more. Good bet. 
Yeah, nice for him, to say the least. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the part where I take all of that subtlety and nuance that you've just graced us with and say, can you tell us overall, how did the Jays do, in your opinion, and, and maybe even, I don't know, slap a letter grade on it, or a 2080 grade, if you really if you really want to stick to the whole scouting <laughs> thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Love, love the scouting grade. Like, I actually, so one thing I had to do years ago um, when I met my wife is I had to tell her oh, how no. to use the 2080 scale. So, you know, if, we, if we're having pizza at a new place, I have to ask her, like, what do you got? Is this a 50 or maybe a 55? <laughs> so, yeah, so so it's, it's good. She's coached up now so she's well versed oh, wow. in the 2080 scale um it's always tough to grade a draft especially right after a draft because you know that the players are incomplete we, we really won't know for another couple years i try my best to say you know based upon what we knew of the players going into the draft and where the teams themselves were situated for the draft we knew where they were picking obviously and their slot bonuses that were were you know valued you know, how do we think they shook out right after the fact? And I have to say, just because of the Hogland pick, um, being such a fan of that, like it's it's really hard to give them anything less than like a B plus. Um, I think you can talk some people into like a, you know, a minus sort of range just because of some of the players. I think they got they got some also some good uh, sleepers, if we use air quote sleepers. There, I think like a guy in the 12th round, Riley Tirada out of Dayton had a huge year. He had been really known to be a very good athletic third baseman the last two years and just really offensively had never put it together. And then he had a, a great season, a 337 batting average, 450 on base, 696 slugging. So I thought he was a great value in the 12th round uh, and not a pitcher, which is, I know we've talked about nothing but pitchers, but he was a pretty good one. And another guy that was a, another Juco player um, that was highlighted in the 14th round is Damiano Palmigiani um, out of Southern Nevada. I hope I said it right because I'm not Italian at all. Um, but he he put up some just bizarre video game numbers um, at, in Juco this past year. He's 6'1", 6'2", I think, and a big right-handed bat. So I, I think that even though the focus is on the pitchers and the quality of pitchers they got at the top of the draft, there's still some guys that you can be excited about further on down at the list. And so I think for all that being said, the long-winded answer is I'd probably say – B plus, and I, you could convince me into A minus. Sure, nice. Well, uh, I, I was think supposed that... to do twenty eighty. Well, I, you I could do either. What... All right. Well, um, so so that would probably make it like a sixty. That'd make it like a sixty draft. Ooh, then. 60. All right, I'll take a sixty draft. Uh, all right. We keep saying all right. Are we we're all right around here, basically, with your assessment. Uh, I appreciate very much you stopping by. If other folks would like to see more of what you do, um, it is Keenan Lamb. It is baseballprospectus.com. He is the senior MLB draft writer, and you can check out his stuff there. Uh, can they find you on Twitter? Yes, absolutely. At Keenan Lamb. That's K E A N A N L A M B. I'm always up for a good discussion on Twitter. Alrighty, thank you for joining us, uh, and uh, yeah, hope to talk to you again sometime in the future. It was really great. Hey, appreciate it, Tier Four guys. I'm your best, biggest fan now. We're good All right, <laughs> later. There, guys. To that same old place that you laughed about. Well, the names have all changed since you hung around, but those dreams have remained and they've turned around. And we have returned triumphant as always. Uh, Josh, are you are you were you that satisfied with the draft until you uh, till you got Heenan's full take on it? <laughs>
Well, I mean, that certainly makes me feel even better. <laughs> I mean, the Hoglin pick, I'd read enough about him also before he got injured to be very happy when that happened. And I really loved the video of Irv Carter when he was drafted by the Jays, just completely breaking down in tears and like, but uh, I, I didn't know enough about those those mid round guys, or obviously the the couple late rounders that uh, that Keenan mentioned. So yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> it's hard hard not to be thrilled with the way he he described it. I mean, obviously it's a draft, and guys won't be in the big leagues for years, some of them, but it's still really nice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what also is really nice is that people care enough to ask us the occasional question. Here we go. Time now to hear from our listeners. That just seems silly. Here are the rules. First I ask a question, then you ask a question. Now how does that sound, sweetheart? Could you repeat the question, please? All right. We start with Kate at OHK Stan. Uh, Kate put up a Twitter poll uh, asking uh, a question and then thought, hey, that's a good question for us too. So the poll asks, Jay's fans, if you could trade for and guaranteed extend one superstar, for many years of the deadline, who would you pick? A third base like Bryant or Ramirez? Uh, a shortstop, Trevor Story? Or a starting pitcher like Scherzer? Uh, do we presume she means uh, someone of Scherzer's age as well? I, I assume. I, I assume it's Scherzer. So. Yeah. yeah. I don't know who else is like Scherzer. Uh, we'll go with like, Scherzer. So I think you could trade for? I, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think there is one. So what's your answer? I have one. Uh, I think I'm third baseman like Bryant or Ramirez. Um, yeah, give me Jose Ramirez all day, every day. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, he's awesome. And you wouldn't need to extend him because he's signed for two or three more years. And Well, yeah, but uh, he's he would make a, such a huge difference. If you stuck him at third and you had uh, Biggio bouncing around and just spelling people, oh, man, the, the Jays lineup would be dynamite. And the defense okay. would be better. <laughs> And remember, the Jays lineup is already dynamite. It'd be dynamite. They <laughs> should not have left you that opening. That's <laughs> the wrong move to make. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, moving on to question two. <clears throat> Al at Ellie Ellie Hart asks, "What causes a pitcher like Robbie Ray to be home run prone, despite being very good otherwise?" What attributes make a less successful overall pitcher potentially give up significantly fewer home runs? One of the biggest things that causes this is the uh, it's the movement on your fastball. I mean, Robbie Ray's fastball, for how good it is, is actually pretty straight. I mean, it's a four-seam fastball that has almost no run, like, well, rel relative. Like, if you had no run, it would actually be tougher to hit because it wouldn't move like a normal pitch. And it has okay ability to fight gravity, but nothing special. So he throws hard enough that he misses bats, and he throws it in good enough spots that he misses bats. But when he doesn't, it's easier to drive it over the fence. And then that's one of the biggest things. So um, that's his problem mostly. Um, obviously, if you're hanging breaking balls or if you, have, if you don't have good breaking balls, it will be an issue as well. He does. His is more the fastball, though. I find it actually interesting to watch the difference between Alec Manoa and Robbie Ray's fastball. The swings that they get on fastballs are so radically different. Um, even though they, you know, if you just look at velocity, they appear to be in the same ballpark. But Alec Manoa 
get swings and misses on the fastball like nobody's business. It, and there's obviously something going on there that that um, batters are not picking up uh, in terms of the way it moves. And, and yeah, it obviously it does not happen with Robbie Ray. Yeah. Um, and, and like, you know, obviously, so there are guys that are like, I, I'm sorry, Tanner Rourke, but there's guys like Tanner Rourke who just are bad and like their stuff just can't measure up. Like his fastball doesn't move enough and his breaking stuff isn't sharp enough and it's going to get hit over the fence because the hitters are just too good right now. But there are also guys like Marco Estrada back in the day who hadn't learned how to use the spin on his fastball to create the deception that he ended up learning, really mastering with Toronto. So it's basically fastball movement and pitch break is the biggest differentiator. And so the, her second question, which do we have a less successful pitcher who limits home runs or suppresses home runs? Uh, it's not common. Uh, you will find guys who are extreme ground ball pitchers. They tend to give up fewer home runs. They might be control, have control issues and their numbers overall might be bad. But, you know, if you get a lot of sync on a ball, you're not going to give as many home runs. Makes sense. Uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin Chase Four doesn't ask us a question, but that's okay because he uh, was thinking about coming home and he linked, and y'all could check it out on the, the TurfPod Twitter. He linked the uh, commercial from 10 years ago that is the best Blue Jays homecoming video of all time, which is the Ricky, Ricky Romero coming home commercial. Um, and I mean, even though it has those god-awful uniforms in it, the spirit of, of returning from spring training in that just gives you chills man i don't know who wrote it but it was amazing yeah well we resisted the urge to open this podcast with that song <laughs> 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 uh, but I, it was fantastic and then, they, <laughs> and then the next year ricky romero had the commercial was like just one inch off and just this video of him giving up bombs over and over and over again it's like dude how did you go from the one last year to this yeah, and then it turned out he kept missing by that inch and another inch. And then um, feet, and it turned uh, out he was really badly injured. Yeah, I'm still not sure how we didn't know he was really badly injured the whole time. Okay, yeah. we're going to leave that behind. Andy at underscore rally cap uh, asks us an important question, Josh. Who on the – and I, I – wow, we're going to insult somebody here. Who on the Blue You're Jays answering first. Needs <laughs> – <laughs> I thought I was asking. Needs courage – a brain and a heart. <laughs> wow. Uh, who needs courage? Rafael Dolis needs courage to hurry up and throw the ball. I think that's fair. Oh, you took the easy one. Um, <laughs> all right. I'll say that um, Julian Merriweather needs the heart because we're not sure he's alive. <laughs> <laughs> because he just disappeared. Who needs a brain? This is a toss-up between Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and Teoscar Hernandez, depending on who's having a bad day in the outfield. I, th I think it's probably Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Um, who, what, uh, I don't know, Teoscar. There are these moments where those guys leave their brain in the dugout <laughs> and don't seem to take into account the what's going on at that exact moment in the game. And then the next half inning, they bring it out with them. So maybe they need a second brain just to keep in their back pocket. <laughs> okay i took the brain question i fell on that sword and to you did you, i appreciate it <laughs> to all of you lourdes guriel jr and teoscar hernandez fans i'm not saying i don't like them as players i'm saying i don't understand what happens from time to time 
Oh my goodness. We also have uh, a couple of gold stars. And in the gold star department, uh, we usually introduce it by this noise. I think that's rather brilliant. So I did good, right? I mean, I would have thought you'd get a gold star. You enjoy that. You've learned it. All right. With one exception, just one, I think that the all-star game miking players up was a resounding success. And I think you should pretty much do that all the time uh, in, in an exhibition game. And maybe even in the playoffs, you can get guys to agree to it because getting down on the field and really getting into the nitty gritty of what's going on, uh, you know, between players and, and on the field is so much more gripping than a lot of the uh, nattering on that you get people like Buck and Tabby and, and a lot of other announcers do it. So I think my favorite one was actually from the pregame in the home run derby. Um, now I can't remember who was, who was talking about it, but they, he was between, um, uh, I think Tatis and, uh, and Guerrero in the outfield. And they, apparently they saw, uh, Garrett Cole on the plane and tried to say hi to him. And he just basically like, just wouldn't even acknowledge him. He just strutted right by and he was doing an impression of Cole's walk down the aisle of the plane. And it cracked me right up. There was a lot of just the fun stuff that came out of the, like the players allowing them, like allowed to be just having fun. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then, yeah, there was like just random mocking of Yankees players from the Jays. <laughs> just, <laughs> just going on. You know, and it was all good natured. Right. And, uh, it, 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 Vlad did the, the the Aaron Judge's home run celebration with him when Vlad hit his bomb. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so the one exception to that um, is not even necessarily miking up the players, but Joe Buck was talking to uh, Joey Gallo. I can't remember if it was if it no, was Gallo it's, uh, Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman, you're probably talking about during the at bat talking to him as the pitch is about to be thrown don't do that oh then it wasn't freeman you mean like while he was at the plate yes yes he was like all right so and so what's coming and it was like shut up <laughs> don't do that man's trying to work <laughs> everything okay. else i'm fine with so this is not a gold star it, like it's kind of belongs in the do-over category but it's all in the same thing the stuff with Liam Hendricks was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Liam Hendricks, for those who didn't watch, was mic'd up and he had an earpiece. They were trying to talk to him and his earpiece wasn't working. So, and he confirmed this later, he thought his mic was off. <laughs> and I think the, the do-over would actually go to whoever's the producer because <laughs> early in his in his outing, he threw a pitch and missed. He went, God damn it so like that's you don't have to believe that one no we're good there but they should have realized he didn't know he was miked because the next time he followed it with some more colorful language yeah liam Hendricks not happy with himself let me just say that because none of it was was related to anybody else he was cursing at himself rather wholeheartedly yep oh man <laughs> And, they, and it was just live, like on Fox. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, guys, you might want to figure this one out. Use the delay or something. <laughs> it's only a couple seconds delay. Yeah, good times. Uh, so, yeah, that whole thing was so much fodder for mistakes and, and uh, fun on either side. I think 
If you can figure out a way to do it more often, and again, don't have to do it every game, but if you can figure out a way to do it more often, do it more often. And find players who are down with it, right? Uh, you had a gold star as well on what, I think we're, this is the, let's make the best of a bad situation gold star. Yeah, um, obviously it's a horrible thing. There was a shooting outside the, the ballpark in Washington um, during yesterday's game, we're recording this on Sunday, so Saturday. And the gold star goes to Fernando Tatis, Manny Machado, Will Myers, and Nats manager Davey Johnson. Uh, sorry, Dave Mart- Davey Johnson. Dave Martinez. Uh, Dave Martinez. Davey Johnson hasn't been around for a while. Um, <laughs> and they uh, they went out and they let fans take shelter in their dugout. And um, Tatis's quote afterwards, which is 100% right, was like, we weren't players and fans at that point we were just all people and like that's exactly what it was they did the right thing to help people stay safe turned out they weren't actually in danger but they didn't know that so i mean gold star to them for looking out for their fellow man yeah a lot of those uh, that section was filled with um some of the the nationals um families and and such is the other angle i've heard uh, but not tatisa's family tatisa's family was not there um but uh, again he he one of his quotes was that he felt like he feels like his teammates are his family and you know he's trying to he's trying to help any way he can so i think to have the presence of mind to to you know to to break that um that you know that barrier between uh you know the crowd and them and not worry about that repercussion simply get people maybe to a safer spot uh absolutely is worthy of a gold star so come on and grab one you know what we're gonna mail one to you um, soon as I figure out how we're going to produce actual gold stars. All right. Okay. That, that takes us all the way up to the end of the program, except for this uh, little section where I ask you for your final thought. Yeah. So we're going to hear a lot of names thrown out in trade rumors and I think that's the way it should be. The Jays should be looking to move out some prospects to get some real impact pieces because they've got a team that can really contend. One name I don't want to see is Orelvis Martinez. I've talked about it before that this is a guy who I think is going to be one of the very best prospects in baseball. And he's making me look pretty good right now <laughs> in uh, in Dunedin, which is now in uh, is a ball instead of advanced day. He's now he, he's hitting 292 with a 375 on base and a 579 slugging as a 19 year old. Um, he's one of the youngest players in the league. He's got the third highest uh, weighted runs created plus of any 19-year-old in baseball in, in the minor leagues. And he's just looking every bit like he's going to be a super-duper star and the type of guy who, uh, you know, a year from now or six months from now, he might be two, three times as valuable in a trade. You know, if that's a, you know, obviously the numbers don't work mathematically that way, but you know what I mean? Than he is now. Like he's, I think his star is just going to continue to go up and up and up, and you'd regret trading him now. Absolutely. Um, so hold on to your or Elvis. Uh, my final thought is about Pete Alonso and the home run derby. Um, last year, Pete Alonso beat Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in the final round of the home run derby. Well, twenty nineteen, but yeah, twenty nineteen, last last home run derby. Um, so he was defending his title. Um, he did not come to compete in the Home Run Derby, Josh. He came to win the Home Run Derby. Um, I don't think anyone else came to win the Home Run Derby. Everyone else came to have a good time. The interview he gave live 
uh, while unfortunately they ignored Salvador Perez's second best in the first round performance, was almost on the level of creepy with how focused and dialed in Alonso was on winning the Derby. Yeah, I as soon as he finished that interview, I'm like, well, he'll probably just just kill the person if they <laughs> they hit more home runs than him to advance to the next round. He had a plan for everything. And, and I like, think I, go ahead. Oh, he just dominated. I mean, it wasn't even close. No. Um, and I also think I know why is because Pete Alonso has made six hundred and sixty thousand uh, dollars each year as a major league player, and in one night on each of the last home run derby nights, he has made one million dollars. Yep. <laughs> so Pete has effectively made more money in the two nights that he has spent hitting bombs into the sunset uh, at some all-star game somewhere than he has in his entire major and minor league career put together up until this point. So me, I would, if I was Pete Alonso, I would show up every year with the trophy in a locked case and dare people to take it away from me. Yep. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. But he was just like so much swagger during the event. It's like, yeah, I'm the king. Come at me, right? Best moment. People came what? at him and they missed. Like, yeah. <laughs> Best moment for me is uh, they were they were carting the poor injured uh, kid off who had hurt their leg, rolled their ankle or whatever, trying to shag fly balls, and they cut back to Pete and he's bopping out to the music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I care nothing for you. It's me, me alone, and I'm going to and win this. And then his quote thing. afterwards was like, "Yeah, I'm the best power hitter in the game." He's like, "Well, I mean, I've got this to prove it." But like, <laughs> okay, like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Who are we to argue with Pete Alonso? Oh, all right, folks. Um, This, I would say, uh, has been... uh, Sorry, no, wait. I would first say you have been Joshua Housem at Joshua Housem. And I have been Greg Wisniewski at Coolhand 2010. And our guest was Keenan Lamb at Keenan Lamb. And this has been Artificial Turf Wars episode number 213. And we will talk at you next week.